This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive. This week, we're going to talk about finding your edge and crafting a thesis with Brad Hathaway of Farview Capital. Uh, Brad is the managing partner of Farview Capital, and their strategy as a whole is they seek out investments with structural or behavioral anomalies that provide the partnership with an advantage. They focus on finding securities that are trading at a material discount to their fair value and where they can understand why that security is being sold and why the partnership has an edge compared to the seller. So this podcast, we're going to dive deep into global investing, how to craft an investment thesis, and really how you can define your edge and, and finding key variables within a thesis. Um, so Brad, thanks so much for coming on the show. Brad, thanks for having me. Looking forward to chatting. Yeah, so I, I, was, I was doing my research kind of like I you know try to do for all the other guests, see if there's any podcasts I can listen to. And you're kind of a... you. You fly under the radar online. I think there was there was one podcast I found with MOI Global, and that was just recently. But besides that, it you know it seems like you don't really have any presence online, which I which I thought was interesting. Yeah, no, I mean I, I definitely yeah you know, I'm not act, I'm not an active blogger. I'm more of a lurker than a contributor on Twitter, and I don't let my letters be published uh, broadly. So you know. Most you you, you kind of have to know where to find me, so you're absolutely right about that. So, how did you get your start in investing? So, so yeah, so I can give you a, a little bit of background on that. So, way back, you know, back in high school, um, I started to do a started to get a little bit interested in investing. I'd always kind of been interested in logic puzzles and math, and so um, investing obviously seemed appealing on a very superficial basis. Um, I w- I'm ashamed to say that my first investment was actually in WorldCom um, based on the incredible thesis that I read an analyst report. I think it was in 99 or 2000 that basically, I think it must, it must have been like 99, that uh, basically had a really high price target for WorldCom and it seemed interesting. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I put a few hundred bucks in that of money I'd made being a camp counselor and promptly lost all of that. So that was my uh, my first uh, experience, which was uh, relatively humbling. Right. Um, I then, you know, I read, I kind of dabbled. I read some, actually, I read a couple of technical analysis books. Uh, the Can-Slim method was at one point interesting to me. Um, but it didn't really catch that much. So then fast forward a few years and later on I went and I started working as an intern during college at a investment firm. First I interned at a private equity firm, which was interesting because most of their projects they had me do was kind of deep due diligence, just, you know, calling a hundred lawn and garden suppliers in the greater Phoenix area kind of thing. Um, and then I went to, I interned at Tocqueville Asset Management, which is a pretty traditional kind of long-term value shop. And they shared an office with a guy who ran a fund of funds. And so given that I was kind of an underutilized intern, I also started working with him. And one of my jobs was to read through all the investor letters he got. 
And so that was an incredible experience because I got to read, you know, in the, you know, this was probably in the 2000, you know, 2003, 2004 timeframe. I got to read um, all these investor letters and there were a bunch of kind of value fund managers who were relatively popular at that point because, um, you know, they, a lot of them had started their funds, you know, in the kind of 2000 period had great track records, especially relative to the S and P because most of them were not invested in tech stocks. And so they benefited from that massive shift from tech to kind of more kind of traditional companies. Right. So I read, I got to read all these letters and that was the first time that I read something that really kind of clicked with me. And so during that internship, I just started kind of looking at my own ideas and I started randomly pitching them to the analysts and portfolio managers at Tocqueville. And for the most part, they kind of ignored me or, kind of pointed out the glaring flaws in my thesis. Um, but I kept doing it and I didn't really think much was coming of it. And I was actually scheduled to go um, work for, uh, I was scheduled, I had an offer from General Electric to go work in their, um, in their kind of management training program. Yeah. And that's what I thought I was going to do. But at the end of the internship, um, the global portfolio manager at Tocqueville, a man by the name of James Hunt, he said to me, he said, hey, you know, you seem to be interested in this and have some aptitude. Why don't you stay? And so that was um, that was my kind of first break into the business. And so there I started, I, for a bit, I supported the Asia and European analysts. So I did a lot of global investing pretty early on. And then um, mostly Tocqueville is mostly a long, you know, long only shot, mostly mutual funds and private client, but they had a small hedge fund business and they had no one really working on short ideas. So given that I was the most junior person there and no one else wanted to do it, I raised my head and said, okay, I'll look at shorts. Right, right. And I, so I actually really kind of cut my teeth as an independent analyst first uh, being a short seller which uh, despite the fact that I do minimal shorting now, I think is one of the best training grounds ever for an up and coming investor. Uh, starting out on the short side really forces you to craft an independent opinion because you don't have the crutch of relying on what management or the sell side might be telling you. You have to kind of do your, your own research and come at it from with your own perspective. And so starting out in that way, I think also helps develop that natural skepticism, which is, I think, really, really important to be a good investor. So fast forward a little bit, I was doing some short selling and supporting the kind of global team, uh, you know, building their models and stuff like that. And then the, the female analyst who covered Asia um, got pregnant. And so once again, Asia was a relatively small pool of capital at the firm. And they asked, okay, who wants to cover for her while she's on maternity leave? And I said, sure, I'll do it. And the interesting thing is she never actually came back. So I ended up um, having uh, being the kind of lead analyst for Asia for Tokyo for a little bit, which meant, you know, traveling to Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Thailand, um, and generating independent ideas in that area. And, um, you know, that was, you know, you know, that was far more responsibility and far more um, autonomy than I at all deserved at that period, but uh, really helped me kind of supercharge my learning of just taking these ideas fully soup to nuts. Yeah. Um, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no that, that, that was, that's kind of actually a good stopping point there. 
I know there's 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 a lot that I wanted to unpack just just from that first section, and I'm going to go back to when you started at the firm and you were and you were sending these ideas and you were just kind of cultivating and 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 curating your desire. How did you gauge your improvement from from one idea to the next? So you mentioned that you would you would send you know the PMs and the analysts these ideas and they would shoot them down. How were you able to say you know what I actually am getting better at this? Because sometimes I think people assume that if they have an idea and they send it out and it gets shot down, that it's A, like a bad idea, or B, they're doing something wrong. When in actuality, you might just be improving, people just might not like the ideas. So how are you able to gauge that improvement for yourself? Um, I think, funnily enough, I mean, the simplest way was, you know, most of my, my write-ups were all pretty short. Um, and actually, just uh, as an aside, this is something I always recommend to up-and-coming investors. No matter what you are doing, if you want to interact with people in the field, the best thing you can do is to send them short, well-thought-out ideas. If you write a fund manager with a, or if you write me with a one-to-two-page idea that's got some decent thought, I will respond and spend and send critiques on it. And it's the best way for people, in my opinion, to kind of get into this business is people, you know, investors will look at resumes and cover letters all day long and it won't have much impact. But if a young person sends a idea that shows they have interest and some aptitude and the ability to basically craft a cogent thesis, that's one of the best ways to get, in the, to get your foot in the door in the, in the investment industry, especially if you're trying to come at it from kind of a, non, from a non-traditional background. Um, so anyway, so that's an aside. But with my own personal write-ups at Tocqueville, I think the, the simplest feedback was how much of my kind of one to two-page thesis they read before they laughed at it. Um, I, yeah. (laughs) So I remember one of the first ones I did was actually on sports authority and I wrote that it was, you know, kind of a really clean, you know, balance sheet, minimal debt. And one of the analysts just immediately looked at me, he goes, you've forgotten all their math, all their lease liabilities. You know, this balance sheet isn't nearly as clean as you think it is. Right. And that was, you know, that was, you know, he read three sentences in my write up and just completely trashed it. And I was completely wrong. And then the next write-up, maybe it was five sentences. And, you know, occasionally you finally got to the point where, you know, they would never say, oh, I like this idea, but the critiques would become, you know, the critiques would become more kind of broad in general um, and less specific errors I had made. And so that was a great way to kind of see the improvement was, you know, when you're when you're at the beginning, you know, that's the time you're going to make a lot of fundamental errors. And that's the experience you get in kind of, you know, knocking those out of your system. Yeah. And there's also the importance of developing that thick skin and not taking any critique yeah. to heart, because that can really screw you over if you start taking things personally. When someone, like you said, three sentences in, they're like, you forgot X, Y and Z. I mean, it's pretty easy yeah. to then get deflated yeah. on a personal level. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think I was lucky in that, you know, I, the, you know, there were some very, very, you know, kind mentors there. The, um, the head European analyst, uh, man by the name of, you know, Jerry Getzos, you know, he was actually the one who called me out exactly. I remember on, on the lease thing, but he did it in a kind way that kind of suggested, you know, that he, he didn't aggressively trash it. He just kind of pointed out that I was completely wrong. Um, and so I was very lucky with that. So at what point did you think to yourself, um, we're, we're now, we're now at the timeline where, 
you've worked at these firms, you've worked your way up, you've gained responsibility, you've gained autonomy. Now, at some point, you're starting to think about going out on your own, starting Farview Capital. What was that aha moment for you that you realized, you know what, hey, I can do this, I'm cut out, I can go out on my own? Take us through that process. So, I, I would say one of the key things um, in in this is, you know, not to let, you know, great be the enemy of the good. You know, you're never going to be 100% ready. And I kind of realized that relatively early on. And so it was more when I thought I was 80% ready that I decided to take the leap. Um, that came from, so at Tocqueville, I had experience, um, you know, kind of crafting independent ideas through these kind of mainly in the short and Asia portfolio. And then a couple of eventually some U.S. kind of special situations longs. Um, and then when I went to Jay Goldman, you know, the structure there was that, you know, by the end of it, I had a very small account that I was managing on my own. But my main so and my main focus, though, was still kind of generating ideas for the larger kind of value portfolio account. Mm-hmm. So I had a little bit of autonomy on the trading side and on just doing my own ideas. And so that had given me some perspective, not just on the research side, but also on the managing a book side. So I felt like I had some uh, some experience there and some exposure there. And that was really helpful. Um, the I'd say the thing that people most people don't think about when talking about smart, starting your own fund, especially if you're going to start kind of a bootstrap fund from the ground up, is focusing on making sure your personal life is in the right place. Um, you know, most people, a lot of people think of, you know, hedge funds is glamorous and high earning and whatnot, but a bootstrap hedge fund is neither of those things. You know, you are, you know, scrambling for checks initially, you know, you're basically not making any money. You're not going to, you're very unlikely to make money unless you kind of shoot the lights out in the first couple of years. And it's more likely that you're actually going to have to dip into personal savings um, and not take a salary and basically burn cash for a, a few years. And so one of the things that actually made me comfortable was at that point, my life was set up in such a way to accept that risk. You know, I had um, no children at that point. I had, you know, my lifestyle was relatively low expense and I built up enough savings to say, okay, you know, I can afford to go without a salary for a few years. Right. Um, and so, I see a lot of people who haven't built up that cushion and the risk of that is I think it makes it really hard to behave in the proper way. If you need to generate good returns in year one, um, but you have a long-term strategy, you know, and you, that, um, that need for kind of personal, uh, for personal financial reasons is going to, is going to overwhelm your kind of longer term investment strategy and force you into errors as you're trying to kind of make ends meet on the personal side. So, you know, I think one of the things that I guess that I think people really you know, need to focus on if they're thinking about starting their own kind of small fund is making sure your personal house is in order. Right. I love that. Just because, you know, so many so many people think, especially if you look at take outside of investors, but like one of the one of the big industries, especially now with everybody working from home, everybody getting their government checks is people are plowing money into trading and they're day trading these, you know, fancy fang names. And, and one of the things that people think about trading is, you know, if you're going to dump your, dump your entire life and start trading full time, you're going to make some really big mistakes where if you have a nest egg and if you have something to fall back on, whether in trading or investing, you're going to, you're going to do much better from a, from a philosophy standpoint. Um, what, how much different does it feel 
managing other people's money versus managing your own. It's something I'm really interested about because no matter how much you paper trade or how much you trade yeah. on your own capital, there's something different about managing other people's money and there's other stresses. And how, how, how are you able to cope with those stresses early on? No, and I, and I think you're, you're absolutely right. I think that is the biggest um, challenge for people who have gone from trading their personal account um, to actually running a fund is there is, a, at least in my, and I can just speak from my experience, but there is a massive psychological difference to losing other people's money compared to losing your own money, especially at the beginning when the people who are investing with you are not going to be, you know, kind of allocators from bigger places, they're generally going to be people who know you. And so to lose the money of your friends, to lose the money of work colleagues, to lose the money of your family is really, really hard. And those kind of psychological stresses, I think, are the biggest thing that people don't fully understand when they think, oh, I've generated excellent returns in my PA, I'm ready to start a fund. The psychological pressures are the thing that make it much, much harder. And like everything in this business, I think, you know, most people think about, okay, expertise and knowledge being a differentiating factor. I kind of disagree. I think that once you get to a certain level, most people are very capable at assessing and valuing the business. And most people are very capable, you know, building models, doing, doing diligence, reading a 10K, whatnot. That's not where you're going to differentiate yourself. The area where I think um, people don't focus as much on is the personal psychology side. Generally, I think that a lot of the, when I look back at a lot of the errors I've made, there's generally been something, you know, either something, you know, something in my psychology that has driven that error. And so managing the emotions of greed and fear, I think, is one of the most important things you can do. And um, as you start to manage other people's money, those emotions get added to with the emotion of, um, you know, of guilt of potentially, you know, this is someone who's entrusted you with their hard-earned savings that they may have worked for years for, and you did something stupid and lost it. That can really cause problems that lead to more errors if you're not able to kind of control those emotions. Do you think the errors, let's say that the errors range Whenever you're investing or whenever you're trading, the errors range between some percentage of errors of commission and errors of omission. When you start managing other mm-hmm. people's money, have you noticed a shift in one particular bucket, whether now you found yourself making more errors of omission or making errors of commission because you're either gun shy and you're afraid of losing money or you take profits too quickly and then you just yeah. forego a winner? Like, Have you noticed a shift in those types of errors between personal money and other people's money? I think it's easier to take a long-term perspective with your personal money um, just because you never actually have to report it. Yeah. Uh, Whereas you never have to report performance. Whereas, you know, depending on what kind of structure you set up, you know, you will have arbitrary signposts that will say how well you're doing and how people and other people, no matter what they say, other people are going to judge you on those numbers. So I do think that, that leads to more errors of omission, I think, where really in that, you know, the fear of losing money in the short term uh, can lead you to maybe missing missing up, like say there's a stock that's been up that's been up a bunch, but you actually think it's worth much more. You know, the temptation to just wait for a pullback 
um, because you're worried about getting marked 10 or 20% um, can lead you to miss a multi-bagger. I've definitely done that myself and seen that oftentimes. Or the flip side of a stock you own and it's really run, the temptation to take some off the table and book a profit um, just so that you, so again, it doesn't get kind of marked against you uh, in the short term, again, is, is very, I think is very prevalent. And so um, I do think, yeah, I do think the errors of omission and the fear of, you know, kind of the taking money off the table too soon or not investing money because of fears of kind of a near-term mark increase um, in, a, in a fund vehicle versus your personal account. Um, and I think it's also then with regards to a fund vehicle, I think it's really, really critical to structure your business in a way um, that limits those pressures. So for example, at Farview, um, I have a three-year lockup and I only report quarterly. And both of those things have been major negative factors for, um, for investors. Um, you, know, both, you know, a lot of investors like monthly reporting and a lot, and a lot of investors like you know, you know, kind of no liquidity terms. But for me, I found they've been a really critical factor in both attracting the right investor base that um, understands what I'm doing, and then also, you know, kind of protecting, you know, protecting the, I guess, protecting uh, the clear space in my head to make sure that I'm in the right, right emotional framework to make decisions. And for example, I remember one quarter, you know, I was down, I think, you know, 10% in uh, January and then, you know, up 10% in February, you know, up 11% in February and March and basically ended the quarter flat. And, you know, I heard from my investors, oh, it seems like it wasn't a quarter where much happened. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> much happened. Um, but if I had reported that January number, I am sure I would have gotten inbound commentary being like, what's going on? You know, yep. it's a horrible month. What's wrong with you? And as much as I'd like to imagine that I'm an emotionless robot, I am sure that would have affected me. <laughs> and if I had to, if I had reported that January, I don't, you know, would I have maybe made some decisions that would prevented the kind of February and March recovery? I don't know, but it's something that I'm always concerned about. And so I guess that's another piece of advice I would give to kind of starting fund managers is be very thoughtful about what you want to be. And then define uh, define your structure in a way that is consistent with that. Um, if you want to be a very long term investor, you know, offering really short term liquidity and frequent reporting, I think is going to cause conflict. Um, that being said, the also important thing to realize is a lot of those choices that I think help with the investing as a pro- as a profession hurt investing as a business. You know, right. doing. You know, all these things make it harder to raise money, but I do think they make it easier to um, be in the right space to make profitable investments. Right. I love it. And it's 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 funny you mentioned the January down 10%, February up 11%. I saw something on Twitter where someone basically pointed out, they said, you know, if you took a snapshot of where we were in February, especially with like the NASDAQ right now, yeah. and you just went away, yeah. went on a vacation and came back, you would think nothing really happened. And it's just, it's just so funny that, 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 that framing mindset where if you're on your screens all day, you're going to be at the mercy of these gyrations, which we're definitely going to talk about further. Um, But before, before we get into the meat of this discussion, I do want to get your thoughts on when you started off on this fund, what were some 
examples of like a big winner that you had early on in the fund or a big loser and what lessons did you take from those um early early yeah. wins and early losses so uh, this is actually probably my one of my favorite topics to talk about uh because it's a, there, well there's there's two good examples here both on the win and the loss side and i'll start on the win side um so Early on, um, you know, so my kind of investment thesis is a combination of long-term value, or sorry, investment kind of principles, or I guess, are long, a combination of long-term value and special situations. So on the special situation side, I'm often looking at spinoffs, post-reover, the, the normal things the special situations guys look at. Uh, so in early, um, so I launched Farview in July of 2011. And for those who don't remember that period, that was actually one of the first the teeth of one of the first kind of European crises. Uh, there was a lot of fear about kind of dissolution of the Eurozone, concerns about the failing Southern European economies. Um, and so it was a fruit, you know, I, and while I always intended to be global, I intended that to mainly be kind of the bulk North America and some outside of North America. But given the opportunity that I saw, I was actually majority in Europe in late 2011, early 2012. One of those investments was a company called Del Clima. Um, so in early 2012, they were spun out of a company called DeLonghi, which makes uh, famous, you know, fancy coffee makers that I'm sure uh, people are familiar with. So Del Clima was a climate control business that was inside of DeLonghi. The, the spin setup was really interesting. It was a small cap, you know, under 100 million market cap. It was less than 10% of De, DeLonghi's asset value. And for the most part, you know, the sell side analysts were kind of ignoring it or giving it a, a minimal value. Um, but reading about it, it was actually a really high quality business. Um, it was the European leader in air conditioning. It was literally number one in Europe in, in kind of commercial air conditioning. So, you know, big air conditioning uh, for big, you know, big commercial buildings in cities and things like that. Mm -hmm. And they were actually the number five. They were the number five globally. So they were a, you know, uh, there was a real gem of a business inside there. Um, it that gem of a of an HVAC business was sorry the the gem of a kind of a cooling business was hidden by a loss making radiator business that was actually the original business and was struggling. Uh, so I started doing research. It seemed like it was potentially interesting, and I called the company. And at that point, um, this was pre spin. They didn't have an IR team, and they didn't even actually have a CFO. So when I called saying I was an investor, they patched me into the CEO. And Not bad. So I ended up, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and I, and so I ended up chatting with him, and he let me know that he was actually going to come to Chicago, um, in the near future to come to a climate control conference. And so I flew out to Chicago and met him for breakfast. Uh, chatted about his business, and then we agreed to share a cab to the conference. He, um, he, the, we then got stuck in awful traffic, so we ended up in this cab in downtown Chicago for like an hour, and he gave me just this long kind of lecture on his business for this entire cab ride, and it was just an, you know, he was so passionate about it, and he understood it so well. It was such a great experience to hear just a, a, a man who built this business for several years and how much he kind of loved talking about it. Right. So that really, that really sparked my interest. So I continued um, doing diligence on it and I was calling a lot of their competitors and I still, one of my favorite calls, diligence calls I've ever done was I spoke to the head of carriers, French business 
And uh, apologies to you, listen, I'm doing a little French accent here. He, he goes to me, he goes, Brad, Del Clima is one of the few Italian companies I actually admire. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember he was so, he was so snotty about Italian businesses in general, but so positive on Del Clima that it really reinforced this idea that this was a real hidden gem of an asset right. um, in this business. And so, you know, it's spun, and when it's spun, Italy was, the Italian market was in the doldrums. The stock, you know, I think started about a euro, quickly went down to about 30 euro-ish cents. Um, and at that point, there was also insider buying from the founding DeLonghi family. So there were a lot of things that came together, and I actually, I made it a big position, you know, then lost some money on for a bit as it continued to decline, um, but then eventually it kind of worked out as hope they sold the radiator business which then allowed the uh you know the AC, the air conditioning business to really shine um and they grew that one you know pretty significantly and then eventually they sold um they sold um to uh to, to hitachi yeah. and that was that was so, a, what, a thousand thousand percent gain yeah so they so I think my initial, so as I said, it started at a euro, it went down to kind of 50 cents and then drifted down to 30-ish cents. I think my cost was somewhere in the 40s and they ended up getting taken out by, uh, they ended up getting taken out at 450. It's not bad. Um, <laughs> no, it was, a, and you talk about, I think, the, yeah, that, while that's a fun story, I, I love a lot of the little kind of elements of that story. Like the, C, the CEO on his first public call, I asked a question, he goes, uh, Brad Hathaway is one of the few investors I know personally. Um, That's pretty cool. And so it was just it was a, it was a really fun kind of personal investment for me. But the well, I think it's what's more important and what's actually valuable here is the lesson I learned from that. So historically, I've been a pretty traditional value investor. So I like to buy charts where things were down, um, yeah, where things were struggling. And during the when I initially invested in the um, Del Clima business. I was that was still very much in my mind, but following it um, for a few years, you know, my I ended up buying shares above the top end of my initial kind of reward section of my risk reward. So I saw the business improve, and I saw the risk reward improved, and that allowed me to you know buy more later on at much much higher prices, and so. Um, and so that was a huge lesson for me because, you know, it kind of broke me of this idea of really paying attention to where something has traded in the past, because depending on how the business has improved, something can be a much better risk reward at one euro than it was at 30 euro cents. Right. And so, you know, that got me out of the kind of a little bit out of my kind of traditional value investors mindset of I only want to buy things at 52 week lows and I only want to, you know, if the stock's gone up 20 percent, I'd missed it. And so that to me was a really, really, really critical lesson. And it was, I think it was only a lesson I could have learned by kind of living it. Yeah. Now here's, here's, here's the other main question I have on that, because I really want to talk about this whole idea of traditional value and, you know, looking, looking for things that don't screen or don't look traditionally cheap. Did you find this based on a screen or did you find it by just reading through different international spinoffs? I'm always intrigued to see how people find these non traditional value type stocks so one of the areas i like for idea generation is keyword based searching um so yeah i i don't do very many numerical searches i mean i'll do some for 
kind of insider buying your 52-week lows just out of curiosity. But my, I, I'd say the most fruitful form of idea generation is using Google and Bloomberg uh, to search for combinations of words that I find interesting. So on the special situation side, it's, you know, spinoff, but also all derivations of the word spinoff, including like spin out, um, you know, demerger, which is popular in kind of the, you know, British, former British Empire. And um, a hive off is another one I've seen. So that there's a way to find, you know, whereas in the U.S., obviously everything files a form 10 outside of the U.S., um, the filings are a lot less consistent and a lot more kind of challenging to look for. So um, Del Clima came, I believe, from uh, a demerger. It was a keyword search. I think it was demerger. Um, so that was how that one came. Um, yeah. And so that's I think keyword based searching um, is it can at least give you a lot of rocks to turn over. Um, and it's less picked over, in my opinion, than kind of quantitative based searching. I mean, I think at this point, I'm almost terrified by anything that is really numerically cheap um, on trailing numbers. I, you know, I feel like that is very scary, in my opinion. Why is that? Why is that scary? Uh, there's so much quantitative money out there um, that I feel like. And so much, and there's you know, been so many people who have been kind of steeped in the value of, you know, maybe, and maybe less so now because growth has done so well recently. But for a while, there have been so many investors that are steeped in the kind of traditional Graham and Dodd and, you know, kind of early Buffett value of low price to book, low price to earnings, um, you know, the green black magic formula. And that I think those areas are really, really picked over. Um, both um, from kind of some kind of older school fundamental investors and also now all the quantitative money that, you know, is searching for kind of numerical cheapness. So in my opinion, the things that are still really, really kind of numerically cheap are often really cheap for a reason. Um, And your likelihood of ending up in some kind of value trap or something, a really kind of fundamentally flawed business uh, is much, much higher there. And so I prefer to, um, I'm always focused on why is someone selling this security to me? And so if I don't understand why it's incredibly cheap, you know, kind of what the overhang is, what's scaring everyone else, and it just seems to be a decent business fundamentally cheap, that worries me in that there is clearly something wrong with this that I just haven't found yet. And so that's, I guess, my, what kind of scares me. Right. No, I'm, I'm, I just, I just think that's critically important for, for, for a lot of investors, at least, at least in the U.S. I mean, I know that front there, there, there are some frontier markets and a lot of emerging markets where that quantitative yeah. strategy definitely works. Japan is a perfect example. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah. and I think, I think it's all a matter of just going where the fishermen aren't and just trying to fish where the fish are. And you can still find yeah. those fish in the emerging and in, yeah. and in, and in the frontier markets. But you mentioned, that you focus on. And I agree with that. Um, now, granted, especially you know, a lot of those kind of, I think you need to take a basket approach um, because, right. you know, I think you are exposed to a lot of other factors um, that prevent kind of concentrated investing in a lot of those kind of quantitatively cheap things that's, uh, you know, in frontier markets. But I do completely agree with you. I mean, I think once you get outside of kind of more developed markets, there's obviously there, there's just not a, there's not enough liquidity. There's not enough data points. So kind of you you lose that those quant those quant investors, and you know you don't have as many kind of U.S. and kind of London-based hedge funds pouring over them. 
Yep, exactly. And you mentioned that one of the one of the things you really focus on is understanding why a security or a stock is being sold, whether it's being sold off or whether it's, you know, just at a point where you think it's cheap. How do you determine like do you have a checklist on things that you're looking for being sold, whether it's like institutional selling, forced selling like we see in spinoffs or you know, you see some sort of structural change like good co, bad co, like how do you go and determine why it's being sold off? So, yeah, and that, that's where on, on the special situation side, I think it's easier because you can relatively quickly, you know, look at a spinoff and say, see, okay, how big a part of the, of the, of the business was it before? Was this a division that people liked or a division that people hated? Um, are there kind of non-technical factors that might drive this, you know, getting booted out of an index or being, you know, a much smaller market cap? And you can at least in some way there assess um, the potential for kind of forced selling of, you know, kind of, or non-economic selling by, you know, holders who are just not natural holders of whatever the kind of new security is. On the kind of more um, general kind of value or, you know, just general investing side, you know, that is, um, that is, I think, a lot often due to a lot of digging, you know, so I, do generally like to look at kind of sell side notes on um, on you know investments I'm looking at, not necessarily for their analysis of the situation, but just to get a sense of what people are worried about. I also love to read the couple most recent conference calls to just see what questions are people asking, uh, what are the things that clearly are top of mind. Um, but that being said, you know a lot of the things I pass on are because I couldn't get comfortable, especially outside of the U S are because I couldn't get comfortable with that kind of why it's being sold question. So sometimes I do a bunch of work and I just can't figure it out. Got it. Got it. And there's, and there's, and there's so many ideas and that's, and that's the thing that I think people also need to kind of understand is there's so many ideas where if you can't understand it, just pass. There's 30,000 securities out there. You're going to, you know, you're going to find 10 to 15 to 10 to 20 that you'll be able to say yes to that question and moving, moving, moving further down and really kind of putting this under the umbrella of these, of these four things that you focus on. Um, the first one, like we said, why is the security being sold? We did, we, we just discussed that. And then the next question you ask yourself is what are the key variables that will make this successful or make this a failure? And it's kind of a pre-mortem, post-mortem type deal. Um, how many how many variables do you try to hone in on per investment? Um, and then and then how is how is this question particularly evolved as you've gotten better as an investor? Because I imagine it'd be hard for new yeah. investors to understand key variables. Um, so you know, kind of kind of kind of walk us through that section. Completely agree. And I think, you know, I think the, you know, the most precise it can be is a few. So let's say three to five. I think if it's any more than five, it's really too many, you know, and generally, generally, you know, maybe in a couple of situations, there's a few, it's one, you know, one or two, but for the most part, there's definitely a couple of things you want to pay attention to. Um, I do. And I do think this is kind of critical as an investor and a, and a mistake. I see a lot of investors, a lot of especially young investors make is, you know, they spend a lot of time on things that don't matter very much. I mean, there's nothing infuriates me more than, you know, a sell side analyst on a call asking for guidance on a tax, on the tax rate to within, you know, 50 basis points for the next quarter. It's like that just does not matter in the long-term value of this company here. Right. Um, and I see that a lot with kind of, 
you know, younger investors who build these beautiful DCFs um, with everything out to the, you know, hundredth uh, decimal place. And it's just, but the key driver of, you know, is it revenue growth or is it incremental margin uh, or is it, you know, return on a big capital investment? You know, that's just kind of hard coded in like everything else without any thought. And it's really, that's what matters in the investment. Um, how that's evolved for me, I think there's definitely, you know, as I've grown as an investor, I think like a lot of people, I've moved a little bit up the quality spectrum in terms of businesses. Um, and I think that's because it provides a bigger margin of safety to me. And the reason why that is, I guess, if you think about a chart, you know, on the X axis is time and on the Y axis is kind of value. And you have kind of two squiggly lines, one of which is price and one of which is intrinsic value. You know, ideally, you want to buy when the gap between intrinsic value and price is at its widest. Um, but you're buying at a point in time and all you know about it is from the past, but all your returns are coming from the future. And so a business that is growing its intrinsic value continues to kind of create a bigger and bigger gap, assuming the price stays static. And so that gives you a bigger margin of safety in the future. Whereas a business, if the intrinsic value is declining, you have to be really, really right on your price. Hmm. Um, and that, I think, is harder. So for me, I, you know, I found mostly through the mis- mistakes I've made that um, – that you know higher quality businesses um have you know if you if you can buy them at a good price have a bigger margin of safety than kind of lower quality businesses so that so my kind of critical questions have kind of moved a little more in that direction um and they kind of mainly focus on the idea that you know if i look out five years you know is cash flow is kind of normalized cash flow five years from now going to be bigger than it is today. And that's kind of the, the North star of what I'm kind of looking for here. And so that then ties, you know, and then for each company, it depends on, okay, is the critical factor driving that significant incremental revenues is the critical factor driving that um, a major cost cutting is the significant factor driving that a, you know, uh, you know, the returns they generate on a new plant they've acquired. And so focusing on that kind of North Star, then I kind of try to figure out what the drivers are of that higher cash flow a few years out. So those, so those questions that you ask yourself, whether it's incremental revenue, cost cutting, are you figuring that out based on the analysis of you know, the past and looking at the business and maybe the industry? Or are you going off of maybe what management's yeah. plans are or kind of just your general feel? So one of the early, really early things I like to do is is kind of look at the the investor presentation because often that you know the company presenting itself in its best light, and if there isn't something interesting out of that, then it's you know then the possibility of there being something interesting I'm to find on my own is 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 a bit lower. Um, but generally, it, you know, it comes from you know it, generally it comes from trying to do a quick understanding of the business which my favorite resource for is often the conference calls um, and saying, okay, you know what, and trying to understand what the, what the key drivers are. And so sometimes it's something, you know, where management will have presented some kind of long-term strategic targets. Sometimes it'll, it will just be kind of a discussion of what their future plans are on the conference call, but that's a lot of what kind of what I'm looking for. 
Got it. Now moving moving down this this checklist you have for yourself, the next the next question you you pose is you say, Do I have the resources to understand those key variables that we discussed? So kind of expand on what you mean by resources. Um, and you know, whether whether that's personal resources, for instance, your knowledge or firm resources like capacity to actually do the research, maybe boots on yeah. the ground, scuttlebutt stuff. No, you 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 hit on two kind of key distinctions there. One is um, one is kind of kind of firm resources in terms of and you know firm is really you know is it, also kind of my personal research bandwidth. You know there are only so many hours in the day, and so as a again a, you know, as advice for kind of small fund managers, one of the most important things you can protect is your own kind of personal research time. And so that means being really, really careful about what you choose to spend time research, researching and what kind of investments you choose to spend your time looking at. And so I love the kind of Sam Dell quote of being the fastest snow in the West. So I try to, you know, I try to look at hundreds of names a year and kill the vast majority of them within an hour. Um, and some, sometimes it's killing it really clearly because there's something I don't like. But other times it's killing it because there's something that I just that I can't figure out what I might like. So I found through looking a lot of, at a lot of companies, one thing you know for the attractive investments for me, there really is that kind of light bulb moment where I'll read a quote or I'll see something in a filing that says, "Huh, this is the angle on this stock." And there are a lot of companies where I'll read through a year of conference call transcripts and. I, I just won't have that light bulb. And so for me, those just end up in that too hard pile. And I say, you know what? Someone else is going to make a bunch of money on this, but it doesn't have to be named. You know, because the worst thing, you know, I want to um, prioritize my time into looking at things that I actually might have the ability to understand. So I don't want to spend 100 hours banging my head on something and end up still con- just as confused as when I started. Right. So that is so really early in the process, I try to focus on finding those things wherein I might have the ability to have that light bulb. And so that's again focusing on what are the key variables here. And that also then kind of drives me into kind of what is my areas of personal expertise and you know, do I have the kind of personal knowledge and personal experience to make a judgment on this business. So, you know, for example, if the key factor is is some new drug going to get approved? Um, I'm probably not qualified to do that. Right. Or there are there are lots of funds that have highly qualified doctors on staff who are going to be at a massive advantage versus me. Or is it going to be that some you know mine somewhere is you know profitable? Again, there are funds that have geologists that know exactly what they're looking for that can get there quickly. You know, I could spend 150 hours and still, you know, and still be at a massive disadvantage to all these people who have just this intrinsic knowledge. So, you know, I start from, you know, I start from this idea of, okay, there are areas where I can understand the business and might, might be able to understand the key questions. And then there are, there are industries that I just can't. And accepting that, you know what, I'm going to not even spend 10 minutes on those because they're out of my kind of, they're out of my area of comfort and out of, that is, I think, really critical in terms of protecting my time. Right, and it's you know, it's I've I read a read a tweet from Cliff Sosen who was talking about business being, you know, not necessarily war but courtship. Um, you know, like you know the 
basically the traditional dating courtship thing. And it got me thinking just, just like you were saying, where, where, where you have this moment where the light bulb clicks and it's almost the same, you know, when you're dating or when you're courting somebody, you know, you aren't really going to know exactly what you're looking for, whether it's in a stock or whether it's in, you know, a significant other until you've, you know, been on dates, read 10 Ks and actually understood like, Oh, this is what I like to see in a person, or this is what I like to see in a business. And I think that's the only way that you can get better is just, is just, you know, increasing those reps, whether it's, you know, trying to go on more dates or actually just reading more investor presentations. Yeah, I I agree. And I think, especially early on people, I think overestimate the value of depth versus breadth. When you're in the learning process, I think kind of exposing yourself to as many different business models and as many different investment theses as possible. Like I think, you know, one of the things I always advise for young investors is the idea of, you know, go get a guest log into value investors club and go read, you know, a couple hundred write-ups from the past, you know, couple of years and just, get a bunch of reps of reading investment theses and see what works for you and what doesn't. Right. Um, and I think that's, yeah, I think that's incredibly helpful early on. As you said, you know, the more you do, the more you get a sense of what works for you. And I think, so you mentioned Cliff and Cliff had another thing that I really enjoy. And I think it's really helpful is this idea of look at businesses that you're actually interested in. So I've found that there are reading about some businesses really excites me. And reading about some businesses, I find a slog. And I've increasingly, and this, again, I completely stole this idea from Cliff. I've increasingly focused on reading about the businesses that interest me. And, you know, these are not necessarily hot, flashy businesses, but for whatever, re- like, for whatever reason, I find them interesting. Because I've found that when I'm, ex- when I'm excited about a business, then learning about it is really interesting to me and I'm just really compelled to do it. And so therefore I do better work. If I'm reading about a business because I think I should, or I'm kind of feel like I'm being pushed into it, I generally find the quality of my research is worse. So it's focusing on these ideas that actually really appeal to me. There was actually a great, uh, Howard Stern had a great conversation with Jerry Seinfeld recently where Howard was talking about, I guess, the grit necessary for him to be cut. He was like, I knew I could be a success in the radio industry if I just put in the hours. And so that's what I did. And it was, you know, the grit that got me through. And Jerry actually corrected him. He said, no, it actually isn't grit. It's love. It's the idea of, Hmm. you know, grit can only take you so far. If you are, you can push yourself to do things that aren't pleasant. You can push yourself really well and you put a lot of grit. That's great. But if you're doing something for love, then the work you're doing is, um, is not it's not work it's fun it's it's interesting to you and it's obviously you know you know for the amount of time he spent on his comedy you can see that in you know he loved actually every minute of that process and that's i think an extreme example but just to bring it back to investing this idea of looking at things that interest you you know make it much easier to do good work than looking at things that don't yeah i mean just for anyone that's struggling to kind of understand this in the investing sense just pick up a book that you don't really want to read and you're finding it hard. Like the odds of you finishing that book with any semblance of speed and efficiency is 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 near none. And that's yeah. also the biggest thing that I learned from Cliff with my gosh, it feels like forever ago when I had my podcast with him, but it's really 
diving in and learning about businesses that excite you and learning about industries that excite you because yeah. this is this is this is something that we're actually going to lead into right now which is identifying those variables and understanding if this is something you can gain an edge because one of the ways that you gain yeah. an edge is by passionately researching this area of an industry yeah. or whether it's tech science anything and then just diving in full force and trying to become an expert so you know, yeah. do you do you just let this process flow out of your curiosity and your love for certain industries or, you know, certain things that you think are going to explode over the next 10, 20 years? What does that look like? So, I mean, I, I try to just expose myself to a bunch of ideas and I try to, you know, quickly figure out, okay, is this something that interests me and can I potentially see an angle? Um, and so that's really, you know, it's, it's the, to me, it's the turning over thousands of rocks to find a couple. And so to do that, A, you have to, you know, create a, a really broad top of the funnel, but then you have to create a really, really narrow kind of choke point and say, okay, I'm gathering all this stuff in and I'm killing so much of it quickly. Yep. And that, um, and I think that is really critical. And one of the ways to do it is again, to say, okay, is this something I'm going to be interested in spending hours and hours and hours on? Because if you're really trying to understand the business, the amount you have to read and the number of people you have to call and speak with, it's a ton of time. And if it's not something that interests you on a deep level, then I think you, you run the risk of making it a slog. And in, when you make it a slog, I think you end up doing worse work. Exactly. Um, and I, I agree with you also on books. I agree with you also on books. The idea of if you're struggling with a book, put it down. There's so many other books out there to read, <laughs> um, and you're never <laughs> going to read all of them. So there, you know, I find yeah, if I have a book in my that I'm reading that I'm really struggling through, I just I, I I don't force myself to finish it. I try to end it and say okay, let's start reading something else because if I don't if I don't enjoy the book, then my overall reading just kind of declines. Yep. Yeah. The last the last book I did not read was one about. Um beehives and how bees colonize and actually make decisions collectively it was super interesting but it, yeah. it it just read like a scientific paper and so and so so i had to put it down um how do you how do you know when you have an edge and i guess another way of quite of, of 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 kind of pausing this question is how do you know when you're comfortable enough to say all right i think i've got an edge so and i, I think this comes back to i think the fundamental tension in, in being an investor is that you have to this kind of balance of arrogance and humility you know buying making an investment is is inherently an arrogant act you're effectively saying you know i know more than other people who are selling the security at this price you know and i you know i know more about this my view of the future of this for this particular security is right and they are wrong um and so to do that, you effectively have to have that belief that you know more than other people. But I think it's really, really critical to then, you know, to then balance that with an ongoing humility to constantly be looking for the ways you're wrong. So I love the kind of Darwin idea of, um, you know, when you find a fact that dis basically disagrees with your existing hypothesis, you make a really big point to mark that one down. Because right. generally, we all like to be consistent. We all like to Trump at the facts that support our existing investment theses and ignore those little things that, you know, maybe don't quite fit. Um, but, you know, acting like Darwin and really focusing on the things that don't fit 
kind of, I think, pushes you towards that humility to say, to keep testing your thesis and say, you know, you have, you know, I, you know, this strong opinions weekly held, you know, I believe XYZ is a much better business than people are thinking about, but I might be wrong. And, you know, I'm going to pay a a ton of attention to the ways I'm wrong. And so, you know, I do find, again, it's, you know, that initial point of arrogance is a little bit of a light bulb where it just seems like the thesis kind of comes together. You know, you, you, you know, I, I generally start with, you know, a hypothesis of, you know, I think this business might see better revenue growth than people are anticipating. Yep. And you find those, you know, you find data points and you learn more about their addressable market and you speak to people who are saying, yep, this product is competitively advantaged and, you know, they should take share. And, you know, th- and you kind of, you reach a point where you start to say, okay, this thesis seems to have some validity. Um, and that's the point which maybe you say, okay, maybe I do have an edge here. But that's the point also where, you know, once you've almost reached that point of arrogance to make the decision, that's where it's almost critical to then flip the switch and say, okay, now is the time for humility. Now is the time to say, okay, let's really continue to pay attention. Let's really seek out and pay attention to those areas where I might be wrong. And when you, I mean, when I talk about, think about kind of the areas where I constantly try to improve as an, an investor, it's this idea of it quickly acknowledging when I, when my thesis is wrong and, um, and get, getting rid of, um, getting rid of positions, uh, you know, at a loss very rapidly. You know, my ideal portfolio would be a bunch of long-term gains for winners I've held for a long period and a bunch of short-term losses because I realized within six months that my thesis is wrong. That would Hmm. be ideal. Yep. Yeah. Um, And and I love one of the things that's helped me in that kind of move is this is actually a lot of George Soros kind of commentary, this idea of, you know, seeking, you know, not being embarrassed by your, your mistakes, but seeking them out and actually relishing them because um, they're, they're, you know, being able to recognize them is almost, is a critical skill. Yeah. And even, even Ray Dalio talks about how mistakes are, I think he, I I, I think he calls them gems or something where, you know, you just accumulate all these gems. And as long as you learn from these mistakes, then you get to actually use those gems in the future to become better. Yeah, there's like a, I remember, uh, there's an expression I forget where it came from, but it's a comment. It's okay to be wrong. It's not okay to stay wrong. Right. Yeah. I have no idea who said that, but I've but I know exactly nah, what yeah. you're talking about. So yeah. let's 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 shift now to how you craft a thesis, and I like I like how you go about this because there's elements that it's very systematic, and I think for investors that are either a struggling to you know craft their own theses or struggling to under you know struggling to figure out how to take apart and investment. I really yeah. like how you do that. And so walk us through how you craft a thesis and kind of these systematic, simplistic way that you, that you do it. Yeah. So, I mean, once again, I kind of start from the point of, okay, you know, kind of who is selling this and why might they be wrong? So, um, you know, I, I very much at the beginning kind of focus on, okay, XYZ security is being sold because it's a spin off or XYZ security is being sold because, you know, uh, margins are de- margins are depressed versus normalized or XYZ is being sold because they have a loss making business that's hiding their other good businesses. And so I start with that thesis of, okay, you know, why might there be an opportunity here? And then the next focus is again, and, 
And then I said, okay, okay, so why and why might I have an edge here? So XYZ has a loss-making business, but it's actually rapidly growing um, and has a lot of um, IP value. And the other two businesses are worth significant money. And XY, you know, the loss-making business is a huge option on, on potential future value. Um, and then it's okay. So what are the key variables? So again, with this idea is okay. So the first key variables for the, you know, are, you know, and actually I'm kind of discussing Toby right now. So maybe should we just, uh, yeah. continue with that? Yeah. Right. And so, and so just, um, just, just for disclosure though, yeah. I do own Toby and do you still own Toby as well? Yeah. So right, cool. I, I'd like to, I'd like to add a little more disclosure. I own Toby. Um, please do your own work. Uh, I'm, sometimes change my mind and I'm often wrong. And if you just buy something blindly based on what someone says on a podcast, you deserve what you get. There you so. go. <laughs> Ditto. Uh, yeah. Um, so anyway, so yeah, so I, I started, yeah, I just, the, the idea of broadly, you know, so I, I look at kind of why, so why might something be sold? So in the case of Toby, um, they basically have three businesses. They have a, they're the, they are the global leader in eye tracking and they're a company based out of Sweden. And so what eye tracking does is effectively it tracks what people are looking at uh, in a variety of use cases. They have three businesses. One business is a medical devices business. It's basically assistive communication for people who um, have disabilities. So think someone with ALS, it allows them to communicate using effectively an iPad that they control with their eyes. Um, they have dominant market share in that they have, you know, 70% share in the kind of eye, eye tracking assisted, uh, communication devices. Uh, the second use for eye tracking is in market research. So tracking what someone says, uh, what someone sees, uh, when they're looking at packaging or a website or how someone, you know, how the best factory workers are looking at things when they're assembling something versus the worst factory workers. Um, and then the third business is what's known as Toby, Toby Tech, which is eye tracking for consumer devices. So that's eye tracking for uh, computers, virtual reality devices, smartphones, met, uh, medical devices for like surgeries and things like that. Um, and so that's that's the third business. What was so what was interesting about Toby is. The first two businesses are dominant players in their field, highly profitable with growth ahead of them. But the consolidated business at Toby is actually loss-making because the third business, Toby Tech, is effect effectively a venture capital business with minimal revenue and huge R&D expenses at this right. point because eye tracking hasn't really been incorporated into a lot of, a lot of products. Mm -hmm. um, so when I look at this thesis, what I started with was, okay, why is this being sold? And I looked at it, and there was a lot of concern. You know, so the funny thing about this is, it's listed in Sweden, but it's a global company. It's, um, you know, 50% of the revenues are in the U.S., 40% of the employees are in the U.S., and minimal, a minimal portion of the revenues are actually in Sweden. Right. Um, but, 70, but roughly three-quarters of the shareholder base at this point are Swedish, and less than 5% of the shareholders at this, place, this point are American. So there seems to be at least some kind of uh, disconnect between the share registry and where the business actually is. Um, and as I started to kind of, you know, I actually had to have some friends who were investors in Sweden and I was looking at some of the sell side reports and looking at some kind of Swedish message, message boards, it became relatively clear that 
to me that this was owned by a lot of Swedish retail investors. And there was a lot of concern among them about the fact that this was, uh, that the overall company was loss making. And so that was kind of to me, okay, so why is this being sold? It's being sold because it's, you know, not that cheap. Uh, it's, it's loss making on a consolidated basis, therefore it's not cheap. Um, but where I thought my edge was is breaking it apart and looking at this, each of the three businesses individually and saying, okay, the medical device business, Toby, Toby Dynavox has dominant share in an underpenetrated market and should be worth a significant amount of money. The Toby pro business again, has dominant share in an underpenetrated market. And again, should be worth significant money. And so then when I compared what I thought those two businesses were worth, versus the share price, um, they effectively covered the vast majority of the share price. And then the question is, okay, what's Toby Tech worth? And that was kind of the harder part of, the, so that was the kind of harder part of this thesis was, okay, you know, the, the key factors are, um, the key factors are, you know, do Dynabox and Pro cover, your, cover the value? And then how much upside optionality is there from Toby Tech? Right. And, so I started, you know, that was, and what was interesting to me about it is I have no precise estimate of what Toby Tech is worth. To me, what it is worth is a huge range, but the positive skew on this is massive. I think the downside is well protected by Dynavox and Pro, mm -hmm. and the potential upside from tech is huge. And so the third part of the thesis became, okay, can I, the, the third key variable, can, uh, became, okay, can I at least put some guardrails around what I think potential Toby Tech valuation is and how would I do that? So the way I went about that was a lot of a lot of phone calls with all sorts of people in the eye tracking space to discuss the competitive position and um, the IP of Toby. And what gave me comfort here was consistently I heard that you know, they were by far the, you know, outside, so the other kind of major eye tracking players are some of the big guys, Google, Facebook, and Apple, but independent of them. So if you're a, say, a Sony or a Samsung or an HTC, um, there was no other kind of independent eye tracking player that had the capabilities, anything close to Toby. Hmm. Uh, so they had the potential to be a dominant supplier um, for a lot of consumer electronics players. Um and so when I looked at the future for virtual reality with eye tracking, when I looked at the future for uh, computing gaming with eye tracking, so eye tracking, for example, is very big in esports, or when I looked at the future for eye tracking in, you know, in uh, consumer PCs for things like uh, security and privacy, um, these looked like huge addressable markets, and Toby's competitive position looked very, looked very strong based on my research. So I was able to say, okay, the potential for this to be worth a very large amount of money is significant. And so that, um, that was kind of the third variable that once I said, okay, my downside is protected by these two other businesses and there's potential for significant upside, the risk reward um, at various prices seemed to be quite attractive. And so that was, that was kind of some of the key variables I was focusing on. And then um, the next kind of, Start of it is okay. Let's focus on where I might be where I might be wrong. So where I might be wrong on this is eye tracking never takes off in consumer devices. So what could Toby Tech, you know, 
so what is so let's say Toby Tech is worth zero, you know then and let's say you know and Dynavox and you know Dynavox, let's say you know Dynavox most of their devices are funded by federal government. So let's say they, um, you know, there's not as much funding and their, and their revenues decline. And let's look at Toby Pro and say they don't get very much pickup in kind of market research. And looking at a conservative scenario and say, okay, if we take all these three parts of the thesis and we basically say, okay, all these things develop negatively, what could this scenario look like and what kind of is the downside in that scenario? And so that's, um, that's kind of so the, the the way the steps go is kind of okay. Looking at the thesis is is why might it be wrong? Where is my edge? What's the potential upside if I'm right? And then what's the potential downside if I'm wrong? Yep. And with and with regards to upside, it's okay. What are the factors that get me to my upside, and why do I believe I'm correct about them? And with the downside, it's what are the factors that protect my downside? And if I look at them conservatively. How do I um, how do I get comfort that they protect value? Right, and and all of this, you've you've kind of said this before, but in a in a in a concise way, this should take no more than a page, right? So I think that if you truly understand an investment thesis, a good write up should be kind of you know max two pages with this structure of um, with the structure of kind of. What what's the opportunity? What's it worth if I'm right? What's it worth if I'm wrong? What are some what are some of the risks? And then behind that, you should have, you know, in your head or in your notes, another thirty pages of business description and supporting evidence and things like that. But the actual thesis should be uh, should be very concise because that's also to me a sign that you really understand the thesis. Yep, exactly. I think it was George Lovatis that has that as one of his investment tenets. You should have, yeah. you know, be able to explain that page, but have 20 pages upstairs to do all that work. Um, did, now, is this, this analytical framework, this, this, this thesis framework, is this something that you've always had or, or, or have you evolved this framework from something a little bit more complex? And I'm almost, I'm almost going back to kind of your early times where it's like, you know, if you look back at the analysis work that you did in the past compared to what it is now, like, what are some things that you wish you would have told yourself? Like, is it is it is it as simple as just, hey, keep it simple, or is it a little bit more nuanced? So, I so funnily enough, actually, a lot of this came from my background. So, Tokyo was a contrarian shop, so they were always kind of focused on things that they thought were misunderstood. Um, and Jay Goldman was almost entire. You know, the entire focus on Jay Goldman was, you know, re- was why is this being sold? So that I'm definitely a product of my environment. Um, but as far as my kind of thesis has evolved, I would say the focus more has been on, again, trying to flesh out the pre-mortem and kind of the risks side of it. Um, because I think as an early investor, it's, it's very easy to get caught up in this idea of here is um, – here's why I could be, you know, here's why, you know, I'm right. And here's what it's worth if I'm right. And here's all the money I'm going to make. But looking ahead of time to say, okay, if I'm wrong, if I look out two years and this has been an absolute disaster, here's why uh, really um, forces you to, I guess kind of preconditions you to look for those factors. If you can define in a period of, you know, if you can define in a period where you're not emotional, you can say, okay, if, I'm betting revenue is going to increase if 
you know, revenue is declining and they're losing market share, I'm wrong, then it's much easier to actually, uh, it's much easier to actually make that decision to sell at a loss right. if that thing comes to pass. Because I think what people forget is, you know, when things are going badly, your emotions are running high and it can make it, and it, can make it harder to make the appropriate decisions. So setting kind of guidelines in place when you're not emotional, when you're writing the thesis before you've made an investment can be a great way to at least prime your brain to, to, to help it make decisions later when, emotion, when you actually own the security and emotions are running higher. Yeah, and COVID was a perfect case study in that where yeah. if you just had these two, three key variables for each company – as your stock was falling, you know, 20, 30, 60%, you could just say, look, do these variables change at all? And with COVID, that might actually be a legitimate yeah. yes. They, you know, those, yeah. those, those might change, but it's, but it's more the fact of having those variables there where it's like, if you're working yeah. out or if you're weightlifting and you say, I want to be able to deadlift a lot of weight, like that's not good enough. You could say, yeah. I want to be able to deadlift 400 yeah. pounds. And then there you go. And then that's how you track. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think, yeah, for example, with COVID, you know, I had a, a security I bought um, in the fall of, of 2019 that I sold at actually a roughly, you know, at a, I don't know, 30, 40, 50% loss, something like that, a significant loss um, because basically one of the key parts of the thesis was that they were, you know, they had a medium stretch balance sheet. Let's say they had some leverage, but it wasn't, they weren't over levered. They had, you know, long tenure debt, you know, minimal covenants, and they were expecting to be able to continue to roll up some smaller suppliers in their industry. Um, however, the impact of COVID immediately basically burned enough cash. So all of a sudden they went from a minorly stretched balance sheet to a very stretched balance sheet. And I do believe that one of the reasons I was able to sell that at a significant loss, um, a sale that I'm, you know, very happy about, um, was because I had you know, basically defined, you know, one of the ways this could, you could be wrong is if they're not able to execute an M&A strategy in the future. And, you know, the COVID blip hurt their balance sheet enough that that was no, that, you know, that problem became fact. Right, right, exactly. It's just having, having those markers in there, it makes it so much easier yeah. to sell. Um, you, you, yeah. you mentioned Toby is a, is a, is a Swedish stock. And actually one of the, one of the ways that you and I really became, acquainted is that we both have an affinity for global investing, especially, you know, some, some, some of these European developed markets, Sweden in particular. Um, talk to us about a lot of common misconceptions you hear around investing in whether it's developed or developing markets, and then some of your favorite markets outside the U.S. to invest in, and then why those are your favorites. So when I think about, uh, I guess, global investing, it's really to me that I just I'm pretty agnostic about whatever exchange the um, the business is listed on. So if it's a global business, I don't care if it's listed in New York, London, Oslo, um, Tokyo, whatnot. I am very unwilling to invest in, invest in businesses that are catering to a specific foreign market because I think I'm at a massive disadvantage there. So so if the business if the investment thesis depends on fashion trends in Korea, no, that's not going to be for me. But yeah. if the business is listed in Seoul but could just as easily be listed in New York, then that's something that's going to be of interest. Um, I think a lot of investors, you know, look at they they look outside the U.S. and they say, oh, 
you know, it's tougher to, it's, you know, it's tougher to understand, um, you know, you don't, you know, you're going to be well behind in the information curve. And I think that there are some factors that that, that is true. So, but I think what people are forgetting now is in an increasingly globalized economy, you need to be aware of, you know, it's not just enough to be aware of demand trends in North America anymore. You need to be aware, you know, most of the businesses listed in New York have global drivers that are influencing their business. Right. So, you know, to say, oh, I can't understand things outside the U.S., so I'm only going to invest in, you know, big mega tech cap U.S. tech companies, to me is, well, those businesses are also determined by things outside the U.S. as well. So it seems to me to be kind of a little bit of a, of a straw man argument. Um, I find disclosure in a lot of the kind of developed countries to be as good or better than the U.S. I and mean, I think in a lot of ways, IFRS is better than GAAP. Um, and so I think a lot of times companies' filings are actually more useful outside the U.S. Hmm. What but do you? I think what's almost more... Oh, I was, I was, I was, I was, I was just gonna, I was just gonna poke at this idea of why you think IFRS is better than GAAP because I kind of want to go into the weeds on this a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, you look at some of the changes that that, that GAAP has made recently. You know, like um, you know, ASD six hundred six with the new kind of revenue recognition and you know, kind of bringing the way they're you know bringing some of these leases onto the the, the operating leases onto the balance sheet. And to me, it's created a lot of confusion. You know, people are seeing, you know, for example, with ASC 606, you're seeing SaaS revenues accelerated and, you know, cost of customer acquisition possibly being stretched out, making economics look a lot, you know, different than they were previously. And, you know, with the, you know, there's right now, it's a huge debate to me about, you know, how you treat these operating leases on a balance sheet, because on the one hand, I don't necessarily believe an operating lease is debt. But on the other hand, right now, if you are using EBITDA, you know, you're not appropriately cap, um, you're not appropriately capturing the cost of that le- that cost of that lease because now a lot of that lease is coming through the kind of financial expense line. Yep. So, I do think that GAP can yeah I, I do think that a lot of the changes to GAP have arguably more muddied the waters than made them clearer. So that is that that's something and you know IFRS I think has been in my opinion more consistent over a longer period. Got it. And sorry, sorry to cut you off and have you gone to go, you know, you know, go down yeah, that tangent. Yeah. But if you kind of want to pick up where 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 you left yeah, off before I cut you off. What I was going to say is, to me, arguably, so I think people should look outside the U.S. Um, because I do think that there's a lot of opportunity there. You know, for example, I think the U.S. spinoff universe is, you know, incredibly picked over right now right now and i think you know it's it's not in my opinion not a great pond efficient but global spins sometimes especially smaller ones can often have some of the inefficiencies that initially attracted you know greenblatt and all the kind of you can be a stock market genius guys so i think there are a lot of opportunities outside the u.s but i think the critical thing is to be really really careful outside the u.s Hmm. so for me the question of why it's being sold to me is even more important outside the U.S. And right. the reasons are that a is that is that a I'm behind the information curve, so I don't have boots on the ground. You know, I'm not having coffee with with other analysts in um, you know 
uh, during the day. I don't, you know, I'm not necessarily reading all these Swedish media, uh, message boards as frequently. And so the information flow to me is a little less than it is previously. I also think it's really dangerous outside the U.S. Um, because a lot of the insider trading laws are not nearly as strong in, in, other, in other countries. And so I do think you run the risk of, you know, the joke is, you know, you know, everyone in Toronto, everyone in Toronto already knows about what's happening with the Canadian stock well before the press release hits the, you know, hits the wire. <laughs> right. Or, uh, you know, or you know, I have a, actually a personal example. We used to be invested, and this was in my Jay Goldman days, in a Belgian holding company that owned a bunch of Japanese companies that were publicly listed. And, I, you know, the Japanese fiscal year is generally is uh, May 30, sorry, March 31st. And in early April, one of these Japanese companies literally, you know, I think tripled overnight or something like that on huge volume. Wow. And there wasn't anything I could find. You called, you know, call all the brokers, call everything. Kind of no one, I'm not going to say no one knew anything, but no one was willing to tell me anything. Yes. Um, <laughs> and of course, you know, a, mo- a month later, they announced their year, their uh, year in financials and they'd have a massive growth in revenue and earnings. Um, and to, you know, I'm not able to prove this, but I strongly believe that those numbers leaked really early. Uh, so outside of the U S I think you have to be really, really careful to not be the, to, to not be the fish at the poker table. And that really comes back to the idea of, okay, you need to understand why the security is being sold to you. Right. I also think that American investors can get in a lot of trouble by bringing U S attitudes about, Things like capital allocation, things like leverage, um, to and things like kind of just general shareholder relations to non-U.S. markets. So, some of the mistakes I've made in the past are bringing a U.S. perspective on leverage to a levered, um, you know, one case a levered Australian company. It had you know two turns of leverage, and I figured, oh, this is not a problem. The banks will just waive it. And very quickly, the banks forced them into a very dilutive rights offering. Hmm. So I think it's dangerous. You have to be very careful about making sure you're not putting your kind of a U.S. framework on a non-U.S. security. Um, The other thing is also just assuming, you know, that non-U.S. companies will have similar thoughts on capital allocation to U.S. companies. You know, for example, all the people who are doing, you know, Activism in Japan have obviously found that to be a lot more challenging. Um, but that all being so, I guess the point is, is is you really need to be very careful. But the opportunities to find global businesses that are incredibly misunderstood um, by their local, you know, incredibly misunderstood are there. So I think if you go globally with a incredibly tight filter, you can find some some great opportunities and. I would urge people to, to say, you know what, just because it's listed in another market doesn't mean it's not, it's not a business I can't understand. How important is insider ownership to these global companies just as a margin of safety where you see, okay, at least management's got some significant skin in the game that might give you a little bit more comfort going outside the U.S.? I, I completely agree, and I think, um, you know, I think that is, you know, finding a management team that is actually driven to, you know, driven either for personal wealth creation reasons or for other reasons to really drive shareholder value is even more important outside the U.S. Because in a lot of places, shareholders don't, you know, 
American capitalism is one of the few places where shareholders really do come first, and you can argue whether that's right or wrong. But in a lot of places, you know, shareholders are third or fourth or fifth in line in the pecking order in terms of who management actually values. Yeah, exactly. And if, you know, if others are looking for examples of that, my last episode with Jeremy Raper, we discussed the whole idea of Japanese shareholder value culture. And it's just a really good primer on how things are when you step outside the U.S. Yeah, I was was laughing when I was, because I actually, you know, I used to do Japan and I remember meeting with a company that had real estate holdings that were 5x the market cap, uh, you know, at that point, 5x, yeah, and, you know, the guy in the meeting, I'd say, you know, why aren't you monetizing these? They're clearly excess, you don't need them, and he'd smile and nod at me, and he'd say, okay, and then it was, but it was so clear that he was just, just brushing me off, he had no interest, and I, you know, we, I looked at it for a couple of years, and they, you know, never did, they never even considered it, so, hmm. yeah. And it actually brings up a question that I thought about, and I know this is kind of backtracking towards those those key variables, but one of the key variables that I would assume, let's say you have a good co, yeah. bad co, that key variable might be management dismissing that loss-making operation, which then reveals this yeah. you know gem of a business. But yeah. at the same time, if you're not a, let's say, a majority shareholder or have a seat on the board or have you know yeah. majority seats on the board, you can't necessarily bank on that. And so I wonder, do you have some sort of discount mechanism in that key variable where, okay, you know what, this is going to have, like if, if, if management does A, then B will be very valuable, but A is not given. So how do you, how do you, how do you think yeah. about that when it comes to management changes? No, absolutely, and I, and I and I think yeah, outside the U.S., you are less likely to have activists and proxy fights and actually have management replaced. So I think that is a key issue. So I mean, I, I have a kind of joke to people like, never ever bring me a Japanese sum of the parts. Not to be interested. You're never going to realize that value. Yep. And so it's a problem. Um, but you know, the, the, I do think outside of the U.S., if thesis depends very much on um, on management doing the on management doing the right thing then you have to be incredibly careful to make sure that's how they're incented or that's how they're wired hmm. I am much less you know so again it comes and so again it comes back to this idea of a, of a much tighter filter outside the US you know there are you you it's not enough just to see you need to see tangible signs of evidence that management is intended to do the right thing. So, for example, you know, Toby, you know, management owns over 10% of the stock and they bought shares significantly in the last year. Um, and they are, you know, the, the founder who, you know, literally started this in his garage is still the CEO. And he's, you know, he's driven an incredible amount of value. He's, you know, at a West, you know, he's lived in the U.S. for a year. He's kind of what very Western oriented in terms of you know, he's considered almost like a Silicon Valley executive in terms of desire to drive significant value. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, I think, I think for a lot of other companies, they're, you know, very, just very content about maintaining the status quo. There's not nearly as much drive to improve, improve values. And also it can be a lot harder outside the U S I mean, you know, to, to restructure a business in Europe is significantly harder. So, for example, we, we didn't really talk about this, but one of the mistakes I made was a company by the name of Aqualis. Um, they were a Norwegian oil and gas consultancy um, that was, you know, was a small cap spinoff. And part of the reason why I think I made the mistake was it kind of hit some of my trigger points that made me excited. Um, but 
where my real error was, the key part of my downside protection of the thesis was that, you know, it's a bunch of consultants. It's a real, it's an asset like business. And so they, they have the flexibility to respond to changes in demand. But what happened was in the oil, in the oil collapse of 2014, 15, um, they actually couldn't, you know, couldn't quickly downsize fast enough, and so they lost they lost much more money than I ever would have contemplated. And that was an example of me bringing a U.S. framework to a non-U.S. company. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. No. It's also on 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 stuff like that. And the only reason that I'm bringing this up is because I had my instance with a commodity linked company and um burned me burned me pretty bad target hospitality i actually pitched it at uh at value x which is where i met you and i think i lead yeah. all of the pitches in worst idea so far like i think it's down over 80 percent. so like if there's a trophy or whatever for that then you know i'm definitely waiting for that in the mail but the but it also brings into question the idea of basing a thesis off of a commodity linked product and it goes back to what yep. you're saying on defining an edge where I think I think you said this in a in an interview or maybe maybe I read it in a transcript. But you basically said, you know, if, if the thesis lies on me projecting the oil cycle and where oil is going to be in three years, then I, you know, I'm out. Yep. No. And, and that's yeah. And that's it comes down to. Yeah, that that, you know, it's being honest about what is the critical question. You know, you can have the best management team in the world, you know drilling wells in, in, you know, in a, in a good geology. But if the oil price, you know, goes from 80 to zero, you're going to get murdered on that investment. Yeah. And so that is the end of the day, that is the key variable. Um, Now, granted, of course, you can try to hedge out that variable if you want, and there's ways to maybe just focus on the part of the investment you want. But if you're doing mostly just as a single one-off long investment, I think it's just really critical to be honest. Okay. I can do all this work in the world on management incentives, but if they're swung around by a commodity price, it doesn't really matter that much. Right. At the end of the day. Right. Exactly. And you know, the best way to learn that is through losing your own money on an idea that's linked to a commodity. <laughs> now, oh, believe believe me, I, I, I'm a, I, I'm a reformed shipping investor, or still in the process of reforming. So I'm very aware of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> shipping shipping's another one that. Uh, that people, a lot of people are getting burned on, but that's, that's, that's been a fun one on, on FinTwit to follow. Now, before, before oh, I go into kind of the last couple questions here, um, cause I know, you know, you've, you've given us over an hour and a half of your time. So I really, really appreciate that. Um, you do mention that you short, I think you said like, wait, maybe it's like selectively or just, or just very infrequently. What, what are you looking for in shorts and what do you think, um, some lessons that people can learn from how you short, because I think a lot of people, when they hear short, they short these names like Carvana and Tesla, where you just get absolutely taken out to the woodshed. No, and I think, so for me, when I'm thinking about shorting, one of the key focuses for me is kind of return on time. Um, So, you know, I, you know, would like to, let's say, put 10% into a long position, I think can, you know, be a three or four bagger over a few years. Uh, or, you know, if I'm going to do a short, I'm going to put, you know, max, you know, let's say 3% to do a short position. I think you cut in half. You know, the problem with a lot of shorting is the short position actually takes a lot more time to do the work than the, the long position does, right. or at least equal amount of time. And so the return on time for me for a lot of shorting just doesn't make a ton of sense. That being said, um, 
the kind of shorting I like are one where there are very clear catalysts. Um, where you can kind of magnify your, um, you can magnify your, your, uh, you, you can magnify your exposure maybe through near day to put options or things like that to get a kind of greater return on time. So things I've done in the past include like I was confident but wrong that an LLP was going to blow its distribution, and so I um, bought bought near day to puts around the kind of date of the next distribution announcement, thinking that they were going to have to. Uh, they were going to have to um, cancel it. And if they had, I probably would have made, you know, I probably would have on a very minimal exposure made, you know, 500 basis points or something like that. But um, so that's the thing where the return on time to me was attractive to your broader point. I think, I think two areas that people get messed up in are purely are shorting on valuation, obviously, which people have talked about, but I just think the idea that, you know, if it's trading at a ridiculous price and it goes up 2x, it's not trading at 2x ridiculous. It's still just ridiculous. Yep. And so there's just no, yeah, there's no, no, no reason for that. And then two is really big positions in accounting related shorts without a clear kind of business catalyst. Because the problem is, is if it's, a, if it's an accounting related story, you are actively working at the management team because they have made these decisions. And they often have a lot more rabbit's claw than Hatton's can ever expect. And so those can go on for much, much longer. And they have the ability to paint the picture however they want. Right. And so I think that people really get in trouble when they make those big positions. I think accounting shorts, you know, although granted that has changed a little bit in the period of short activism, this idea that you can kind of publicize things and, you know, get people to pay attention really quickly. Yeah. Um, I think for, although I think that is starting to work less and less as the quality of short active business has declined and people are paying less attention. But um, to me, the most interesting way of kind of shorting on the accounting side is kind of what John Hempton does is this idea of shorting fraud as an asset class, you know, where he's created this massive database of fraudulent people and just kind of has a very small positions in a basket of fraudulent stocks. Right. Um, but that takes, that takes, I think a lot of auto, automating of your research process that he's put effort into that I don't think a lot of people have. To me, these shorts that make the most sense are wherein you know wherein you have a you have a declining business and you have what you think is a clear inflection to the downside. Because I think what a lot of people I think a lot of people think linearly, um, and so they say, okay, you know, revenue might decline 10%, but they forget that because of the fixed cost base, the 10% decline in revenue is going to lead to a 50% decline in EBITDA. Yep. And I think though, catching those inflections to me has always been the most interesting way of shorting. Hmm. Yeah, I like it. I like, I also, you know, going back to my conversation with Cliff, Cliff always says he likes to short things that are bond-like. And if he can, and if yeah. he can find a bond to short, then that's kind of the sweet spot for, for his short book. Yeah. And also, think, you know, I think... Um, you know, um, there are, yeah. And I think you look at, you know, like Jeremy actually was on your podcast. I thought he, you know, when you talked about his Tupperware bond short, I thought, you know, that is one where you're, again, your, your downside was limited and there was a clear catalyst to when you had significant potential upside. Yep. So that was, that was very appealing. Yep. Exactly. Now I want to kind of close this conversation with the idea of a whole looking, looking at it looking at your life and investing kind of from a holistic standpoint, because one of the things we were talking about before I hit record is 
you know, being outside and the importance of getting outside, getting active and moving around, um, you know, getting, get, getting time in the sun, especially during COVID when everybody's trying to stay inside and stay indoors. Um, one of the things that I'm always interested in when I talk to investors is how they do things outside the screens or outside of reading 10 Ks and reports that actually help them become a better investor. And so, you know, yeah. if you could, if you could just talk us about, talk, talk us through some of the things that you do that you think have a direct impact in making you a better investor that are away from the screens. Yeah, no, and this comes back to something I kind of mentioned earlier. Um, I think what sometimes people overestimate in the investing business is the degree to how much kind of intellect and expertise really matters above a certain level. I think once you get to the class of, you know, very capable professional investors, everyone kind of knows how to do the work. Um, but managing your emotions is the part that is, I think, the harder part. Um, and I think where people get tripped up and, you know, when people blow up in this business, it's often because they went on tilt and doubled down in a, in a, in a mistake or they, um, got timid and didn't put capital to work in a good idea. And those mistakes are generally not mistakes of analysis. In my opinion, they're mistakes of emotion. So making Mm -hmm. sure you manage your personal psychology to me is, is critical. And so that requires kind of finding ways to derive value outside of the um, to derive value outside of the uh, investing field. So for me, I personally um, like athletics. I you know I find getting exercise every day helps me clear my head. So you know I hike, I mountain bike, I ski, I play tennis, and those kind of things are critical because I find each of them gives me something different. So tennis is another chance to kind of focus on the craft in a purely physical way, you know, trying to be very precise about making sure my process is really good. Um, I love the idea and I forget who I'm stealing this from of a comment about called samurai scoring, wherein you don't judge necessarily by your output. Um, you judge by whether you kind of brought honor to the game. Hmm. Um, and the idea, so like if you are playing tennis, you know, and you're, you hit a great shot, but the guy hit, hits a better shot back, um, that's a positive samurai point. You yep. brought honor, you just happened to get beaten. But if you win the point because you hit a terrible shot and the guy slugged the return, that's not. You know, even though yep. the outcome is better there, the process was bad. And so I find tennis can be very helpful in terms of, you know, uh, again, staying with that kind of focus on process versus results. But I also find the idea of being out in nature and doing things that are less results-oriented in terms of, let's say, hiking or skiing or biking are really helpful to kind of clear my head because in this business, you are, you're doing something where you are constantly judged. If you, if you watch your P&L every minute, and I, and I highly, highly urge people not to do that, yeah. but if you are judged, <laughs> For every minute of every day, you're being told whether you're smart or stupid. So finding something wherein there is – finding something where you can be freer and just kind of enjoy the experience can be a very nice break from that. Yeah, and it's uh, – oh, go ahead. Yeah. And I also just think that it's sometimes important you know, to realize when there's not something to do. So there are times when you are in the groove and there are a ton of ideas and those are the times that you really need to dig in and really need to take advantage. 
but some of the worst mistakes I've made and I've seen others make are trying to force things when you don't have something good to do, when you don't have any good ideas. You know, for personally, uh, a few years ago, I had a big position get taken out and I ended up having a bunch of cash in my, in my fund and I felt kind of guilty about it. And so I tried to find ideas even though I couldn't find anything. And I made two of the worst investment mistakes I've ever made. So this idea, so sometimes I think it's important to accept when you're either not seeing the ball well or when there just aren't that many good balls to hit and say, okay, you know what? I'm going to step away and do something else for a little bit, be it athletics, be it um, painting, be it music, be it whatever it is, whatever gives you a release away from that, I think is really important to help you keep that kind of even keel temperament that is, in my opinion, one of the real true long-term advantages in this game. It's funny how you mention that you felt this guilt from having this large cast position, which goes back to really the first kind of topic of our conversation was the difference between managing your own money and others' money, where if that was just Brad Hathaway's money, then who cares, right? Like, you've just got this large cast position, who cares? But the fact that it's, you know, it's 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 your money, yes, it's 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 Brad Hathaway's money, but it's also Brad Hathaway's LPs. And so it's yep. just it's just so yep. interesting how this 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 feedback mechanism where you're like, oh, I'm you know, all this stuff is just a drag on my performance. And then, boom, you go in and like you said, you have two of your worst ideas. And then another thing I wanted to chime yep. in on was the idea. And I actually have never heard that idea of the samurai point thing, which is which is yeah. really cool. But one of the things my coach would do because I played, you know, I think I talked about this with Jeremy because he's because he's another tennis fan, but I played tennis pretty competitively between the ages of 14 to 18. I was training six to eight hours a day, six days a week, um, which, you know, like we said earlier, led to me getting burnt out, which is always a fun topic. But one of the things my coach would tell me is he would just have me focus on footwork. And for warmups, if my footwork was great and I hit it into the net or I hit it out, he would say, who cares? Your footwork was good. The process was good. And it's just I love that idea yeah. of going back through with the process where you can have great footwork, great fundamentals. You can hit a you know screaming backhand down the line, but if some guy runs over, slides, and hits a slice right back behind you, you know you're still doing the right thing. Yes, no, and yeah, I think that is that idea of and in this business, and I think one of the challenging things in this business is if you do concentrated investment, you don't have that many data points, so it can be very tough to judge process yeah. so yeah and you're but you're constantly being given feedback on your uh, on your uh outcomes and so being able to come back and focus as you say on the footwork or you know i've been reading you know the inner game of tennis you know again uh, the great galway book and just focusing on bounce hit you know that kind of stuff you know which in investing is focusing on looking at ideas focusing on um, crafting a thesis and just continuing to do that, I think is so critical. And then the other thing that people might not understand, especially for a lot of these smaller shops, because a lot of the guys that I'm friends with, um, you know, a lot of guys that I've had on the podcast, yourself included, they're either one man shops or one or two man shops, very, very small operations. And a consequence of that is you end up spending a lot of time either a alone or b just in your head all day and the ability like you said to get out in nature even to get out with other people is important because investing is this inherently i think it's in an introverted activity where you're just thinking and you're processing and everything's internal but that can also really have some negative effects let's say you have two losers in a row or you're just you know lamenting on something and so the idea of 
taking time to get outside of your head is also really important. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think that is, and I really think that both in terms of, you know, when people are thinking of like starting up a fund, it's the, the people focus too much on kind of the structure of the fund and not as much on themselves personally. And I think when people think about their investing, they again, focus too much on, Oh, here's all our brilliant research strategies, but not as much on, okay, how am I going to keep myself sane over what's going to be, you know, there are going to be many, many challenges. I find this business, you feel stupid at least 70% of the time, and hopefully that 30% of the time you feel smart makes up for it. Yeah, and when you're smart, you actually make money. That's the other thing. Yeah. So, and just on the samurai scoring, I want to give a attribution. It uh, was from the Broadview Capital Management, Anthony Hamill and Lee Matheson. You know, they, I think they wrote about in their 2015 letter. I'm looking back at my notes. And they, you know, they, they deserve all the credit for that. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll put that in the show notes because I want to I want to take a look at it. Um, now let's get to kind of our closing questions, which is the last thing I you know say to every guest. It's you know pretty pretty uh, carbon copy. Where can people go to find out more about you? Whether it's you know Brad Hathaway, um, Farview Capital. Where can where can people reach out to you if they want to know more about your fund, the philosophy, and chat? Sounds good. So yeah, um, the easiest way is on our website uh, www farview capital mgmt so f-a-r-v-i-e-w capital you know it sorry farview capital dot com. um maybe we should put that in the show notes too yeah <laughs> that's that's where you can uh that's where you can find most of all the letters and any ideas we've written up uh, and that's the best way to get in touch uh it also has my email address um you won't you won't find me on Twitter. Well, I'm a lurker on Twitter. If you can figure out my handle and more power <laughs> to you. But the, yeah, the, the best way is to use the website and reach out direct. It's actually funny. I almost want to have a competition because our, our listenership is grown. I mean, there's no doubt about it. We're now, yeah. you know, we're more, more people are listening to the podcast now than they were six months ago. So I almost want to put it as a challenge to see who can find Brad Hathaway and do like some yeah. sort of cool challenge and send them a book or something. Um, because yeah. it's <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I would I would absolutely I will absolutely support that challenge. And I'll give one hint. Um, my handle is skiing related, and what is is, is actually was my AOL name for back in high school. So <laughs> high school skiing related. All right, cool. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna put that challenge out there to anybody that finds it, and it's got to be verified by Brad, obviously. Um, and and there's some who know it already. There's some people who know it already. You don't count. Okay, yeah, so if you know it already, you don't count. If you don't know it already and you find it and you can verify it, I'm going to send you a copy of, uh, I think it's Brad, it's your favorite book, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius. We'll just send him, I, I can send him a copy. Yeah, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll come up with a book to send him as well. All yeah. right, perfect. Yeah, so the gauntlet's been thrown. All right, so last last question for you, Brad. If you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, uh, who would it be and why? So the former political science major, I'm interested to hear your answer. Yeah, the... The um, yeah, it's funny because you know I actually once interviewed at Google and I was sitting around with a bunch of actual science majors like electrical engineering, computer science majors, and I kind of came to me and I said, well, it's, I guess I'm political science. It has science in the title, but um, <laughs> you know, it was a definitely def, definitely calling that a science seems to be quite a misnomer to me. Um, so I've been actually right now I've been reading. Um, the Eric Larson book about Winston Churchill. 
And he would be a fascinating person to me to sit down with just because the more I understand about those early periods of World War II and the Battle of Britain, just the challenges he faced in terms of keeping the morale of the country positive while also acknowledging the hardships faced and the tightrope he kind of walked in terms of both, you know, having to communicate to the U S and the U S who really wanted nothing to do with this war, both the chat, you know, both the optimism that Britain would survive so that the U S wouldn't do it as a lost cause and the kind of, but also, also saying, you know, if you don't help us, we're going to, you know, Germany is going to take over Europe, you know, having to balance that tightrope both, while having to manage an ongoing war effort, you know, the idea, what, 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 is, what is super impressive to me about him is this ability to keep these kind of multiple concepts in his head and, and walk this tightrope while communicating is fascinating. And I would love to sit down with him and just kind of better understand how he led his country through such a, such a brutal time and such a time of pessimism. And if you look back in those early periods, there was, a huge assumption that the UK was going to lose Germany. I mean, it was yeah. almost a foregone conclusion. And a lot of his kind of force of personality, what, and you know, obviously the great man theory of history is certainly flawed, but in this case, I do think there's a lot of credit that he does deserve for his force of personality to keep everything together and get to the point wherein they were actually able to survive long enough to get the U.S. gender and, Get get Hitler to go after Russia. Yeah, um, I mean, you talk about emotional yeah. stability. It's yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. crazy. Yeah, so, yeah. It's, it's it's funny. One of one of um, one of a CEO of a, who I admire. Um, he was interviewed on a podcast, pretty in kind of the worst of the COVID in the UK, and he was like, and the the host started off. He goes, "So how are you doing, Robert?" He goes, "Well, I'm not sitting in a trench with bullets flying over my head. So in all in all, I'm doing pretty well." <laughs> and that to me was it, was, it was a great reminder that, you know, you go back and you look at, some, you know, obviously this has been a challenging period and there's a lot of tragic things, you know, this challenging period in multiple ways now and a lot of tragic things that have happened to a lot of people. And I think it's important for all of us to remember those of us who, you know, are most, I think, the listeners to your podcast are, are very much among the lucky ones. And it's important to remember that the challenges we face now compared to the challenges of other people in history and other people in the world today are generally a bit smaller yeah. and not to downplay anyone's personal challenges, but to keep perspective and, you know, keep perspective and keep as much of a level as possible in periods of challenge and periods of difficulty is a, is a critical life skill. So yep. anyway. Yeah. And, and just to, just to kind of capstone that another, another thing to think about is we as a nation, whether you want to call it America or just, or just humanity in general, we've gone through a lot and we've been able to overcome it. And so as you look at the current crisis, as you look at future crises, because this will not be the last pandemic, you know, this is not going to be the last time we have unrest. As you, as, you, as you look forward, it's pretty tough if you want to bet against humanity and bet against, you know, humans' ability to come together and collaborate and actually, you know, innovate to figure, to figure things out. No, and I and I and I, exactly, and I and I hope so. These are definitely trying times, but I like to remember that you know it was a while ago when the right the it was not that long ago when the Wright brothers flew a Kitty Hawk, and you know we've now put people on you know multiple people on the moon, and yeah, you know, the progress of humanity going forward you know tends to be in one direction, although albeit very bumpy in between. Yep, awesome. 
Brad, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time, and I look forward to speaking to you again. Absolutely. Always great to chat, and thank you so much for a great podcast.